And if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. I was contemplating on splitting this passage, but decided to preach all four verses, and uh, there's so much in there that we'll delve into. But we'll read those four four verses and unpack it, and ask God to assist us in understanding his word. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And we come to a rather familiar passage, and it reads this. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, most high, whose law is perfect, converting the soul, whose testimony is sure, making wise the simple, whose commandments is pure, enlightening the eyes, we humbly ask that through the riches of your mercy to enlighten the eyes of our hearts by your Holy Spirit, so that we may truly grasp so great a salvation we have, and that we may treasure it and give our earnest heed to it. As important as all of your scriptures are, we know that there are certain passages like this one that you want us to particularly take heed to and to listen. And so we ask, O Lord, incline our hearts, our intellect, Lord, to your word, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, preaching has fallen out of favor. Stop preaching at me, people say in these post-Christian times, or they say, spare me the sermon. If we consult the dictionary, we find that the first definition to preach is to deliver a sermon. But the second definition is to exhort in a tiresome manner. And when average Americans think of preaching, that is exactly what they have in mind, something that is tiresome, boring, and probably annoying as well. Preaching has fallen out of favor. And that is evident by the popular style of preaching where it is less dogmatic and more conversational. People want pastors to share not preach. People need more stories, fewer propositions. They want preachers to be personal, less doctrinal. You know, one popular trend is for preachers to tell a simple story designed to teach a moral lesson as opposed to a traditional exposition of scripture. Often it is a personal tale of the preacher's trials and triumphs with lots of emotional content and a little thorny theology. Now, pastors who resort to this form of communication have lost their confidence in the power of God's word, and as a result, their congregation no longer believes in the power of God's word and rarely hears the voice of God's spirit in the scriptures. Yet the point of Hebrews is that God has spoken, and in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Therefore, we are exhorted right here in chapter 2 to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, that is the voice of Jesus and the gospel of salvation. The writer of Hebrews is not seeking to preach the latest news, his personal experience, nor his private opinion. His aim is to preach God's word. In fact, in Hebrew 13, 22, the writer describes his work as a word of exhortation. Hebrews is distinct from the other letters in the New Testament because it is a sermon sent as a letter. 
Now, a good sermon, as you know, is not an informational dump where the preacher studies the text, backs up the exegetical data, and bumps and dumps it on his congregation. A good sermon is when the truth of the text is driven to the homes of the hearts of his listeners. A good sermon demands always a response from God's word. The word of God always demands a response. A good sermon is never less than an explanation of doctrine, but it is, as the good doctor Lloyd-Jones has famously said, it is doctrine logic on fire. Now, there's a number of stylistic features that clearly point to Hebrews as a horatory, sermon-like character. One of them is the use of the second-person plural pronoun you as he addresses the readers, and also very frequently we and us and our. And by using we and us, the preacher knows that he is not above his congregation, but he identifies with his listeners, giving warmth to his sermon. So here in verse 1, he says, we must pay much closer attention. And throughout the letter, you'll hear him write, let us, let us draw near. Let us lay aside every encumbrance. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. But perhaps most telling that this is a sermon is the number of passages with, which are interspersed throughout the letter that have the quality of warning. As any loving, faithful pastor, he knows his congregation. He understands their temptations and their weaknesses and the dangers they face. And so, kind of like a metronome, going back and forth, the writer oscillates back and forth between exposition and admonition, from theology to practice, from proclamation to application. Just to sample a few, let's look at Hebrews 3.12, where he admonishes, after a strong chapter of doctrine, take care, brethren, that there not be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Go to chapter 4.11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. Go to chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. And perhaps most familiar to you, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangle us. These passages serve to demonstrate that doctrine and teaching is not merely theoretical and unrelated to the realities of everyday life, but it is intensely practical and therefore full of intense seriousness. That is why the first chapter was dedicated to the exalted view of the supremacy of Christ. The whole chapter, uh, the first chapter is preoccupied with who Christ is, that he is God himself, co-equal with the Father, the only begotten Son of God, whose throne is forever and ever. He does this. Because understanding who Christ is is absolutely essential for understanding what he does for salvation and for persevering in the faith. So all that we learn in Hebrews chapter 1, we learn not because about the, we like the finer details of the person of Christ is of particular interest to those who are in seminary or who love reading systematic theology. No, we learned it because it has everything to do now with eternity. For this reason, or therefore in the ESV, expresses a logical imperative. And the reason for this theological elegant argument of the supremacy of, of Christ in chapter 1 now surfaces. And it is to the implication of the supremacy of Christ we now turn to. And I want to show you in these four verses what the Christian's great interest is and the two 
main reasons for it or the two dangers of not heeding to this. So what is the Christian's great interest? Well, let me explain it this way. I thought that it was interesting that in chapter 1, that you will actually not find any commands. There are no imperatives in chapter 1. Nothing is said of what the church or the Christian must do. Phrase by phrase, line by line, the author has been arguing that Christ is the greatest one. There is none like him. This whole chapter is a declaration of God's final word to the world, Jesus Christ. And the chapter begins, God, after he spoke long ago in the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. His point was that there is a finality with Jesus and his word and the world. There is a decisiveness with Jesus who is the incarnate word of God. That was the point of Hebrews 1, the final decisive word, Jesus Christ. And then Christ is then given various titles in the first chapter of Hebrews to prove the finality that Jesus is the final word. He is called the heir of all things. He is the one through whom God made the world. He is called the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. He's called the upholder of all things by the word of his power. These titles or phrases are heaped up by this author in order to, for people to understand that there is no other prophet like him. He is someone of an altogether different category and of different magnitude. And from the sevenfold title, the author then in verses 5 to 14 quotes, seven different passages from the Old Testament to instruct us on the absolute superiority to the angels. It was a tour de force in Christ in the Old Testament scriptures that he is the son of God. But with this word, for this reason, or therefore, beginning in chapter 2, the first command is fired off. In other words, the author is showing us the so what of chapter 1. For this reason, because God has spoken to us in His Son in these last days, because He is the Creator and Sustainer and Sovereign Ruler, Redeemer and King, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. The fact that Christ is superior to the angels and is the ultimate manifestation of the infinite grace of God logically follows that we are indeed under a moral obligation to pay attention with utter seriousness to the proclamation of the gospel. Because he is God's son, therefore we are to give heed to what he says. Because he made the worlds, therefore you must give heed unto him. Because he alone can offer salvation, pay attention and don't drift away from the message of Christ. Now since these next three verses provide a comparison of sorts between the consequences of neglecting the law in the Old Testament compared to neglecting the gospel, we may take verse 1 comparatively, which is how verse 1 is translated for us. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard compared to the angels and the mediators of Old Testament law. But I believe that the sense of verse 1 is superlative rather than comparative. And so the sense of verse 1 could be translated this way. We must pay the closest attention Or as J.B. Phillips has translated it, we ought therefore to pay the greatest attention to the gospel. This implies that the greatest attention that must be given, the best care, the best diligence that one must have is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the duty here is intended, as the Puritan William Gouge put it, a serious and fixed setting of the mind upon that which we hear, a bending of the will to yield into it, an applying of the heart to it, a placing of the affections upon it, and bringing the whole man into holy conformity thereunto. It is the duty of the whole man, mind, heart, and will. And eternal issues are at stake, and the gospel by its very nature demands to be treated with the fullest seriousness. Therefore, it takes great diligence. Brothers and sisters, this is a business above flesh and blood. It is the divine revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls upon us to give earnest heed to what he has to say. You see, there is urgency here. It says we must we are not to give a quick glance or treat the gospel like we casually read our Instagram accounts or have an occasional discussion about it like when we are at a retreat or special occasions in church meeting. Nor is this gospel to be treated as an option when you have a crisis, let's say, in front of you. Earnest heed means undivided attention. This is the Christian's great, greatest interest. It is paying the greatest attention to Jesus Christ. And it does beg the question for us, doesn't it? To what are we paying the greatest attention to? To what are we consumed by? To what is our eyes fixed upon? To what captivates our affections and desires? To what do we give our most serious concentration? Let me ask it this way. What are you listening to? What demands your attention throughout the day? Now, if, any, if the answer to any of those questions is something other than the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, then you are in grave danger. And the author lovingly points his congregation to some critical dangers. And there are two of them that I like to deal with. The first danger is drifting. He says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Now let's consider this word drifting. William Tyndale in his early English translation had glide. That is one way to read a verb. It's an image of sliding past through carelessness. Gliding past the place where we ought to come to land. Another possible way of reading the verb is to think of losing something that slips from your grasp without realizing it. Plato uses it as something Slipping from one's memory. How relatable is that with our own memories? How we easily forget where we put our wallets. Or we easily forget what we did or ate yesterday. Or easily forgot our train of thought or someone's name. And if you were to ask me what I preached last Sunday, I probably would tell you, ooh, I forgot what I preached last Sunday. But I tell you that drifting is something that happens so easily to us. Now, there is a more graphic picture of this drifting. This word along with pay attention has a nautical significance having to do with ships and sailing. The first verb to pay attention or heed means to moor a ship, to tie it up, to fasten the anchors to the seabed. The second verb drift can be used of a ship which has carelessly drifted off course or ship in harbor that has slipped its moorings. Now put these two words together and you get the sense of verse one in this way. Therefore, we must carefully and eagerly 
fasten and anchor our lives to the things which we have heard in Christ, lest the ship of life drift past the harbor of salvation and we glide away forever. Imagine reclining on a raft in the ocean. All seems well. The sun is shining. And then you become drowsy in the warmth of the sun, falling asleep. And when you finally sit up, you are arrested suddenly by the awareness that you, are, you have drifted far from the shore. There you are, surrounded by a deep and dangerous sea with no landmark and no bearings. Now, this actually happened to me in Hawaii some 10 years ago. When I was snorkeling with some friends, I was uh, floating there, mesmerized by all the turtles and colorful fishes, when the current took me further and further away from the shore i tried to swim back but the current was so strong that i panicked and i i felt like i couldn't make it back to land and i yelled help one of my greatest fears is drowning but thankfully our brother Eno, he's not here but he was right there on the shore and with his broad shoulders he came and swam to me and brought me a floaty and even though my pride was a little hurt because i had to go back on a pink rubber floaty i was more relieved But the great danger highlighted here is that drifting away is something that happens largely unnoticed. Just drifting away from Christ. While it is happening, the changes are imperceptible. Only later, as you have drifted far away, do its consequences become clear. Listen to this from William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Think of drift away in verse 1 and listen to this. He says, look. Look at that man yonder. Look at him going down the river. There he is going down in a boat with Niagara beyond. He has got out into the stream. The rapids have got hold of the boat and down he goes. He need not pull at the oars. He has nothing to do but to be still, but to go on with his sleep, to go on with his novel. He is going, going. My God, he has gone over and he has never pulled up an oar. Then he says, that is the way people are damned. They go on. They are preoccupied. They are taken up. They have no time. They don't think. They neglect salvation. And they are lost. What a picture of those who are drifting. They're doing nothing. It's so quiet. So easy. So subtle. Brothers and sisters, hell is full of people who are doing nothing. I cannot begin to tell you the number of people whom I have known and seen, some who were once very committed to the church. I don't see them anymore. Some have come face to face with the gospel and they have felt an interest in it. They have been at the entry into the harbor. They simply have to fasten themselves in Christ and go a little further and they would arrive in the port. But where did they go? They're not renouncing Christ. They're not against the church. Some are still very religious attenders of the church, but for some reason or another, they have gradually and gradually turned aside to secular life and to secular interests, and they have allowed themselves to drift past it. What a tragic thing it is to be in the sight of the haven only to drift past. I can't think of a more contemporary warning than this. Just drifting away from Christ You know, I think it's good for us to consider what what are some of these currents that bring about drifting away from Christ? There's several I'd like to mention. There's the current of years. 
You know, the longer one lives, the more prone they are to drifting. There are many who profess Christ in their youth or in college. While there was some initial spark, over time, that spark began to dwindle. You know, usually these are people that feel that they have arrived in their Christian walk. They have attained a level of status quo when comparing themselves with other Christians around them. And listen, those who feel that they have arrived are no longer going to travel. And there are many professing Christians who unconsciously and carelessly have slid away from their earlier better selves and have not committed themselves to the gospel as they did in the earlier days. Oh, they keep keep appearances, but these appearances are deceptive. And with each year that passes by, it has carried them down the stream away from their more old, vigilant self. But there's also the current of familiarity with the truth. When we grow up in churches where we are accustomed to hearing the gospel message, we can get to a point where we tend to slip into a mode where amazing grace is not amazing anymore. In fact, it's downright boring and routine because it's so familiar to us. It has been well said that the most certain truths too often lie in the dormitory of the soul side by side with exploded errors. And that is the danger for everyone who has grown up in the church and attended churches where the gospel is preached regularly. We can become complacent and too familiar with the gospel that it no no longer moves us. Now, that ought to alarm us because the writer of Hebrews isn't so much concerned about people who outrightly reject the gospel. He's concerned about those who are, he's not concerned about those who are on the outside saying that all this gospel stuff is a bunch of foolishness. Oh, he's speaking to those right in our midst who are in danger of drifting away from the gospel because it has become a custom grace. And so they sing, oh, how boring the sound. But then there is perhaps the most dangerous current, the current of negligence due to all the trivial distractions and busyness and cares and concerns for the world. We can be so occupied with other things that we do not pay attention to the gospel anymore. We know the gospel is important. We give lip service to Christ, that he's the center of our lives, but we neglect it. Negligence to the gospel happens When the thousands of trifles and distractions of our daily lives absorb our interest and draw our attention away from the gospel, so we drift. You know, William Guthrie, a Scottish Puritan, wrote only one book, but it was highly esteemed by his contemporary, John Owen, and who said that besides the New Testament, he would only carry another book, which is Guthrie's book. And the title of that book was The Christian's Great Interest. And in this section where he gave reasons for why so few attain the knowledge of their interest in Christ, he marked slothfulness and negligence as chief reasons. Listen to what he wrote. Be ashamed, you who spend so much time in reading of romances, in adoring your persons, in hawking and hunting, in consulting the law concerning your outward state in the world, and they may be worse things than these. Be ashamed, he said, that you spend so little time in search of this, whether ye be an heir of glory or not, whether you be in the way that leadeth to heaven or the way which will land you in darkness forever. What a rebuke this is in our Instagram, YouTube, 
iPhone, media distracted day and age. Men and women are so absorbed in the thousands of trifles that the gospel does not receive their time or attention, and so they neglect the truth and they drift away from it. There's hardly a man or a woman who finds themselves worldly. There's hardly a man or a woman who finds himself secular and finds themselves in the kingdom of darkness. Whoever planned it that way from the beginning, no one plans for that. But a little at a time, a little at a time, we drift and we drift and we drift. Now, I have considered all of these reasons of drifting at length, not only because I want to be practical, but because I know myself. I know my own heart. I know my own tendency to do the very thing that I'm talking about. Beloved, let us take heed to this warning of drifting. It's so easy to follow the cares of the world and be lost to God. It's so easy to find yourself engrossed in the affairs of the world and you read the Bible less and less. And finally, you never open it at all. We come to church finally on Sunday morning and it's open, maybe on Easter, but then maybe not at all. And we drift and we drift and we drift. It's so subtle, unnoticeable. And soon we find ourselves in another country altogether. And that is the constant danger to all of God's disciples, the drift of life, following the desires and the cares of the world and losing our first vision, our first love, our first devotion, and drifting away from Christ. Therefore, the author says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. But then he gives a second warning. In order to drive home to the point of the eternal consequences of drifting and not paying the utmost attention to Christ and the gospel, the author uses a rhetorical device of the lesser to the greater to emphasize just how severe the danger is. It's one of the great questions of the whole Bible. And he begins with the lesser thing. For if the words spoken through angels prove unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, and now he argues to the greater thing. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now this is one of those verses that dispel the common notion that the New Testament is easier or more loving than the Old Testament. It actually argues the reverse. If neglecting the word of the angels brought immediately earthly consequences, what will be the consequences of those who ignore the salvation of the Son? Now, the reference here to the angels is incidental to the author's argument. He's merely, he's merely pointing to the angels in their role of mediating the law that was given at Sinai. And uh, while the author is again pointing out the place of angels in God's service, the point is the law that was spoken through their mediation at Sinai. The law was firm. Because it was spoken by God and no one was able to escape the penalty of the law. Every transgression, it says, and disobedience received a just penalty. But here the author is pointing to the greater mediation to men. One not of the law, but one of everlasting redemption sealed by the blood of the Son of God himself. Now in order to feel the weight of this question, perhaps it'll help if we worked through this text backwards. So great of salvation. This word salvation is indeed a great word. It's one of the key words in this epistle. You'll see it there in Hebrews 1.14 that the angels were sent to minister to them who are heirs of salvation. Later on, Pastor Minjay will preach in chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, the perfect, 
to perfect and author of salvation through sufferings. Salvation, it is a great word. What a beautiful expression. So great a salvation. Uh, We could have a whole sermon on it. But let me give you a few brief reasons why it is so great. It is great in the first place because of its author. Now that is a good way of testing the greatness of anything. Who has produced it? Who is the creator of it? Who is the author of it? Now, you know, the days of going to Barnes and Nobles are not what they used to be. But if you go to a bookstore to find a novel to read, how do you decide what you want? Do you look at the titles? No, we look at the author's names. We want to read a book that is written by a great author. What determines the greatness of a book is the greatness of the author. And Hebrews tells us that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. The message of salvation is not a human message. It is not conceived of men. It is unlike any other book in the world. For its author, its God, and its message is divine. And there is glory in salvation because of its authorship. And also glory in the special way that this message has been given to us. I want you to notice in the middle of verse 3, it tells us that after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now, this means that the gospel was proclaimed by the Lord Jesus Christ and then was attested by the apostles and thereafter transmitted from faith to faith through succeeding generations all the way down to our generations. It says, through the apostles, God also testified with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And so by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, their message was attested and authenticated as from God. So how great is our salvation? It's not only great because of its authorship, but in the special way it's been given to us. It's a message from God, the blessed Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and now here, God the Holy Spirit. This salvation is great because Almighty God is speaking to you. He is giving his message through his Son and by the Holy Spirit. But it's great secondly because It delivers us from a great enemy. This is what salvation means. Escaping or delivering from someone or something. You ask, escape from what? The punishment of God due to our sin. Sin is our great enemy. For the wages of sin is death. Or as Ezekiel 18.4 puts it, the soul who sins will die. Now the world has ignored the fact of death. It has ignored the fact of the coming judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for men to die once. And after this, the coming judgment. Death is not the end. Each of us will die. And after death, we will all stand in the presence of God. And the question that every living soul must consider is, how are you going to stand before God and give an account for your life? What will you say to God when he asks, did you keep my commandments? What would you ask for God when he asked, did you live for me? Did you love me with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and strength? What will you say? What can you do? There is nothing you can do. No man or woman will be able to stand before a holy God, for they will quickly be banished from his sight, from failing to keep his commandments, and will suffer hell forever. Sin is our great enemy. And there is only one way to escape the wrath of God. And that is the precious blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
In Hebrews 9, verse 12, we read these words, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Not redemption for six months, not redemption until I sin, but eternal redemption. What a salvation. It delivers us from our greatest enemy, sin and death. And if you are not a, if you are not a believer here today, there is nothing more important for you than to consider your own soul. Your most pressing need is to consider your own condition before God. And that if you were to die tonight, you will face God in judgment. And if you see yourself as a hopeless sinner in the sight of a holy God, then I say to you, the remedy is Jesus Christ who has come to deliver you from the wrath of God by His shed blood and on the cross that He died for your sins. This is what makes salvation so great. But there is more. Let me just give you one more reason why salvation is so great. It's wonderful for the inheritance you will receive in the future. Heirs of salvation is how Hebrews 1.14 put it. That is the promise from God. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8.17 we are being prepared for a glory that is indescribable. Listen to our Lord, John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the inheritance to come promised by this so great a salvation. Is there anything more precious than that? Is there any greater hope than that? Anything more precious than that? Believers of all ages have sought to express so great a salvation we have. We just sang one from Charles Wesley. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. But now having spoken of so great a salvation, consider the word neglect. And we read this verse with an entirely different tone. The verb neglect is applied to a person's attitude that doesn't care or is not concerned with the gospel. It means to disregard. It's a word that is used by Jesus in Matthew 22, 5 in speaking of those who paid no attention and neglected the great invitation to the wedding feast because they were too busy with their business, too busy with their jobs. And here we must recognize again that the author is not so much concerned with those who have never heard the gospel, but the warning is for those who have heard. And what's more is that this urgent warning is not for those who outrightly reject the gospel, but for those who neglect it, ignore it. They're careless with it. And to borrow the language of the author of Hebrews, those who drift away from the greatness of Christ. This is a warning to those who no longer marvel at the incomparable Christ. No longer desire to make the gospel the central thing in their lives. No longer seeks to make gospel strides. And whose love for God diminishes little by little by little. And the love for the world increases little by little. This is a serious warning for those who simply do not care for so great a salvation. Do you now feel the weight of this question? How will we escape if we neglect, not reject, 
not fight against, not simply neglect, but simply neglect so great a salvation. We cannot. It is impossible. You know, we're living in a very unusual time in history. This is a day of grace. This is a day of God's mercy. Judgment day has not arrived at this point. This is a day of God's patience. And so sometimes we are inclined to think that, well, God is patient and he is gracious. So he won't mind if we neglect his salvation a little bit. He'll understand the busyness of our lives and how over time we can be careless with the gospel. After all, it's not as if we're not going to church. We're not doing our religious duties and not serving and not giving our offering to him. It's only natural that we ignore here and there. God is merciful. But the author of Hebrews actually argues just the opposite. He says, because this is the day of grace, because this is the day of God's mercy and patience, therefore, he says, it is doubly, doubly full of condemnation and doubly dangerous. And thus John Calvin writes, it is not only the rejecting of the gospel, but even the neglecting of it that deserves the severest penalty in view of the greatness of the grace which is offered in it. God wishes his gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. The more precious they are, the baser is our ingratitude if they do not have their proper value for us. In accordance with the greatness of Christ, so will be the severity of God's vengeance on all despisers of the gospel. In other words, the more precious the gift, the greater the penalty if it is ignored. It is more serious to sin against love than it is to sin against law. It is more dangerous to neglect God's mercy than to break his law. And as you read the Bible, you will find this solemn warning everywhere, but nowhere more serious and more grave than in Hebrews. Later on in chapter 10, 29, he puts the question in this way, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, if you turn your back on the blood of Christ, if you continue neglecting, there is nothing left. There is no other atonement left. There is no other means of escape from divine vengeance. Beloved, there is no escape if we ignore so great a salvation. Now, who of us have not drifted? Who of us have not insulted him by forgetting him? Who of us have not neglected him and his great salvation? We have all sinned. We have all neglected him. We have all, time to time, drifted from Christ and put other things before him And there is no greater insult to God than that. What can we do? Nothing really. Because God has already done everything in Christ. We must then fly again to the rock of ages and sing, Let me hide myself in thee. Let the waters and the blood from thy precious flow which flowed be of sin of double cure. Save from wrath and make me cure. We need to make certain that we may pay closest attention to what we have heard for what has already been accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this, we see paradoxically our responsibility in this, do we not? God has paid the salvation. 
And he said that salvation is a great thing because we have contributed nothing to it at all and it was all paid for us in Christ. And yet if we drift away from it, if we neglect it, if we fail to pay close attention to it, then the consequences are disastrous and eternally so. Drifting, as we learn, doesn't take much effort, effort on our part. It happens by virtue of doing nothing. Staying on course as a Christian is quite the reverse. It requires constant diligence. And while the currents of life naturally make me drift, you and I must constantly strive up the stream to the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says in various places, I press on, I follow after, I strive, I run, I fight. In that great passage in Ephesians 2, 8-9, we read of what God has done. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then listen to the next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. That initial grace of God, that gift of salvation, was just the beginning. And the rest of our lives is a dedication to so great a salvation that we have received. A man and a woman must consciously strive to be a Christian. He must consciously strive to be diligent, to contemplate, to pay attention to, to treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you say, you know, I want to lie in bed for a while. No, I must get up. I, I want to mindlessly scroll through my phone. No, I must open my Bible. I want to get all the promotions at all costs. No, that doesn't matter. I must consciously set myself to pay the closest attention to the Lord Jesus Christ lest I drift away. No tide ever sweeps a man up to glory. You must diligently strive and toil and press on to give earnest heed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Christian's great interest. So, beloved, let us then pay closest attention to our great and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are eternally grateful for these warning passages. For it is out of your love as a shepherd you seek to warn us from dangerous places and to lead us into righteous paths. We confess how our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately sick. And so often our hearts are prone to drift, prone to wander from the God we love. And we confess with sorrow how we have ignored and neglected so great a salvation. We fly then back to the rock of ages, simply clinging to the cross, pleading for your mercy, O Lord. And if we have been pricked in our hearts for our drifting and our neglecting, we humbly ask that you would restore us to our first love and that we might more zealously and diligently pay our greatest attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O oh God, to fasten ourselves to the sure and the steady anchor in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.